Hey folks, as many of you know, Doing Justice is my new narrative podcast based on my best-selling book of the same name. It explores cases from the unique perspective of prosecutors grappling with urgent, legal, ethical, and moral questions. You can subscribe now for free by searching Doing Justice wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm pleased to offer this exclusive bonus just for Cafe Insiders with me in conversation with journalist Bianca Golodriga. It's a behind-the-scenes look at the creation of the podcast and the stories of those individuals seeking or caught in the crosshairs of justice. Hope you enjoy it. Episode three, one of the most gruesome cases, stories I've heard. I will. I read initially in the book and now listening to it. Um, I was not looking forward to this one because I knew. Um, Have you eaten recently? Bianca? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I ate a few hours ago knowing that we'd be talking about this. And I only ate vegetables because I just <laughs> couldn't stomach um, the subject matter. But the subject of thought crimes in and of itself is fascinating. And I assume that's one of the reasons you wanted to to highlight this this case. Yeah, look, I think each of the cases that are in the Doing Justice uh, series, we wanted there to be some complexity, you know, some ethical complexity, and for people to think, you know, not just you know what we did. I talk about some of these cases in the seminar I teach at NYU Law School, and I think part of the reason I wrote the book and did the podcast series is not just to teach people about the law, but you know, for there to be people who engage in some exercise of moral decision-making. What would you do? Was it reasonable? And people should have their opinions and hear this complicated issue of whether something is an actual crime or merely something they're thinking about and fantasizing about that they would never act upon and how you're supposed to figure out the difference, not just as an observer or just as a potential victim, but as someone who is responsible for keeping the public safe. That's not so easy. People will say, you know, do, do the right thing is easy. It's not always possible to know what the right thing is if you don't have enough information. And one of the reasons we don't have enough information, and this is complicated, is I don't mean to speak for you, but I at least can't read people's minds. And that makes this kind of thing difficult. Not yet. Not yet. But you're probably pretty good. Well, you know, it would be helpful, especially, you know, when you've got children and, and a spouse that, that um, save you a lot of aggravation. But yes, we're not there yet as, as, as a species. I mean, what, can, I, can, I, can I ask you a question? Because, you know, I'm very close to this case and I'm not inured to it, but I have, you know, read the transcripts and seen the texts and some of the language we didn't put in the episode because we thought it was a bit too much. Some of the things these people were saying to each other. What was the most shocking thing to you? I have to say, maybe not the most shocking, but the most terrifying for me, sort of like the hairs on the back of my neck stood up, was when his wife, Kathleen, was talking about him questioning her running route at night and encouraging her to run. Like there's just no person that would encourage that. I mean, I run. And that's why I was wondering, because you do run. And what do you do when you run, by the way? May I, may I ask this personal question? What do you often do when you run? I listen to podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> I listen to yours. <laughs> and I've told you that. I'm doing a cross promotion. <laughs> I'm probably one of the few people who have run marathons and half marathons listening to your voice, as opposed to, you know, some inspiring song, which I can hear people playing in their headphones. Right. It's like two choices. Either, either it's, it's Eminem or stay tuned with Preet. Yeah. Maybe it's why I never <laughs> win, but look, it gets me through, it gets me through the race. But look, when, when she was talking about that as a spouse, as a woman, as you know, for your husband to 
encourage running at night, asking about light details. That just, you know, you can understand why she fled with their child. And, And look, I don't pretend to be a puritanical person who judges people for their fetishes and, and what people do behind closed doors and what websites they go to are, you know, that that's their doing here and their choice. But I do think there are certain lines you just don't cross. And that's why I'm shocked that there would even be these types of websites. Like, Preet, how is that legal? I mean, this isn't a, we like to wear orange heels at night. This is, you know, cannibalism. This is gruesome. But it wasn't, it wasn't in fact cannibalism. And we have, you know, there are many countries that don't have a first amendment and you can't say certain things and you can't talk about certain groups in a particular way. And with a very, very robust First Amendment, where speech is given very wide latitude, there's all sorts of crazy stuff that I learned about for the first time, too, in connection with this case, that is permitted. You're allowed to say and think things. And so long as you have not taken some substantial step in connection with doing one of those things, you can be criticized with counter speech, and you can be you know, thought of as a pariah. Uh, all sorts of other social consequences can befall you, but you can't be convicted of a crime. And the, the difficulty here in the Gilberto Valley case, the cop case, is we were somewhere in between, you know, pure thought and the actual accomplishment of the kidnapping, rape, killing, and eating, if I can put it that bluntly. And that's what made it complicated. But it wasn't just some arbitrary figures or, or fascinations that, you know, he he fantasized about or, or talked about him. He would actually fantasize about people they knew and would, you know, in one situation went to the school where one of the women worked and was staring at her from the window. I mean, that's where I just think you cross a line where how is that not viewed as a- Well, you're making it very, you're making it very clear, Bianca, that that you should have been the judge in the case. <laughs> I agree. Uh, and there were other things that he did, including- But you don't think the judge did a miscarriage of justice here. Well, and maybe I didn't explain this well enough in the episode. I think it's a very complicated case. And I think different parties in, in the system have different roles to play. And so I think I can say the following things are true at the same time. And that is, if I had to do it all over again, we would have authorized the arrest. Remember, People may remember from the episode, you know, we wanted to have a sting. We wanted to have an undercover. We wanted to have wiretaps. We wanted to have all sorts of other information to corroborate and further support our view that you have, that he really meant it because it wasn't fantasy. The victims were not, you know, made up. They were real people who he knew. And he was a real cop with a real gun and he was going on vacation. So we didn't have the chance to do all that further investigative work and, and collect those facts. And in the absence of that, I think we absolutely did the right thing because, you know, as the chapter in the book is entitled and as the episode is entitled, God forbid, we didn't, I mean, imagine what would have happened had we not brought the case and he had done something. Right. He was going on a lengthy vacation and it was unusual for this not to have been planned out. I mean, it it really did seem that this would have been his window to do whatever gruesome act he, he wanted to do. I mean, it's a little more complicated than that because the FBI, you know, there's some, I think, mild disagreement or, or debate, at least with the FBI, because the idea was not just to let him go on vacation. The idea was to have eyes on him. And maybe it's, and I've, I've had a very good-natured conversation with the FBI agents on the case since, you know, they, they were more confident than we were that they could keep eyes on him. But we just thought the risk, you know, was too high. And ultimately everyone came to the same conclusion that we have to take him off the streets now. So we would do the same thing over again. 
we would try the same case. I think the jury would convict. And although I think that he should have had his conviction upheld, I, I get the judge's point too. I, I wouldn't have done that, but I see, I see where the judge is coming from because it was a cl- ultimately given the evidence we had, you know, there's some evidence that, that went against us. The fact that, as we say in the episode, they kept setting up a date to do the bad deed and the date would come and go. And nobody ever said, as the judge points out, Nobody ever said, hey, how come that thing didn't happen? Like, you know, what's going on with that? You're falling down on the job. When are we going to rape and kill those women? And when are we going to cook them? That didn't happen. So there's some basis, if you're the judge, in coming to that conclusion. I think it's wrong. I guess what I'm saying is my intensity of feeling is not the same as it's been in some other cases because there is some argument to be made. I think at the end of the day, it was wrong for the judge because the standard for reversing the jury verdict is not that the judge thought, it was a thought crime. That's not the standard. The standard is whether any reasonable jury could have found a crime was committed. And I think it's perfectly reasonable for people to have the same view we had and that it was a prosecutable crime, not something that was just in his brain. So on that basis, I think it was an utterly incorrect decision. And I think the Second Circuit Court of Appeals was incorrect in affirming that decision. But in terms of whether or not overall cosmic justice was done, you know, I, I can, I, you know, with the passage of time and maybe leaving that position, I get it a little bit. Do you? I mean, perhaps the reason maybe I do, even though I, I don't agree with the judge's decision, but I'm not a legal expert, is that there were others, other internet friends of Valleys who the judge did find guilty. The same judge, right? But there was more evidence. That's why I think that's an important part of the episode. Right. Yeah. So. I I get that part, but I just find the evidence in this case, I know that you didn't go as far as you'd wanted to with the sting operation, but man, it it looked like he was going to do what, you know, he'd been fantasizing and and talking about doing. I understand why his wife left. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you would, you would have, right? Oh my goodness. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And then the suitcase, like all of it. No, the suitcase thing is nuts, right? And and like Hadassah said, um, and she's such a great character. I really love Hadassah. She's also one of those that I I don't want to know what she looks like because I have this image in my mind. (laughs) Because you know. But I I understand that there are certain cases that just affect you personally and, and change your, the way you view, you know, being a mom. And how she said she worries about her daughters now because this happened to be a police officer. And I can understand how stories like this make you change the way you think and and view the world and view other professionals and citizens. These are the kinds of things that prosecutors and law enforcement agents have to think about. And I think what people don't realize is a certain dilemma that we have a lot in law enforcement. It's not just, do you charge? What do you charge with? Sometimes it's more simple than that more pragmatic than that. It's like, when? You don't always have the luxury of being able to complete your investigation. There's, there's a, a future episode, I want to spoil it for folks, where it's the same sort of issue, not as gruesome, where you're worried that someone has committed a crime and they're going to leave the country. And what are you going to do? With minimal evidence, do you go ahead and arrest? Because otherwise that person might become a fugitive. Just like the case with Gilberto Valley, he's going to go on vacation Are we going to lose the chance? And sometimes opportunistically, because you care not just about ultimate conviction, but you care about immediate short-term public safety and you have enough evidence to bring the case. It's just not the strongest case in the world yet. What do you do? And I I, I want people to ask themselves the question as they listen to that episode, 
and future episodes and read the book. What would you do? Because we can't read people's minds. And the other thing we can't do, and I don't want to, again, I don't want to speak for you. We can't see the future and unable to read people's minds and unable to see the future. And given a crisis of timing, an urgent timing crisis, what do you do? And and just going back to why we did this series, I want people to be thinking deeply about not only the decisions that other people make so they can comment on them and critique them and think about them, but, but you hope it refines their own decision-making process. Well, I mean, I'm not going to ask you what would have happened if you didn't do what you did and go through with it. And God forbid he followed through on his fantasies, right? I mean, you ask yourself that question, I'm sure in many instances, but this is particularly gruesome. Yeah. I think there would have been hell to pay. And so I want people to understand who are critical of law enforcement sometimes put yourself in the shoes of the officer who has to decide, you know, when to take down a case. There's another case that I talk about in the book. It's not in the series that's gotten some criticism. And it was, you know, it was a sting against people who were going to blow up a synagogue. And the question is, how far do you let them go? How far do you let them go? And, you know, even in mob cases and in drug cases, even when you're up on wiretaps, there's always this question, you know, in those kinds of cases, the crimes are being committed sometimes, right? And they're being permitted to be committed. Why? So you can bring ultimately your racketeering case against someone higher up. So there are very complicated questions, morally, ethically, and timing-wise. Knowing that people are selling these drugs or knowing that people are organizing a plot to do something, how do you balance public safety against the interest in having the strongest possible case at trial? And I'm repeating this for the second or third time. It's not easy. And I'm not saying that in every case, the decision-making of law enforcement should just be deferred to and respected. Absolutely not. Second guessing can happen all the time and is important in, in, in a free democratic society. What I'm asking people to think about when you think about the cannibal cop case is, you know, it's a complicated thing. <laughs> That's all I can say. It's not so easy. Well, I mean, I think you're being kind, again, as somebody who's listening to this, and I'm, I'm sure there are others who would agree with me that, that don't have your legal background, this would seem like a slam dunk case, right? I mean, you just listen to all the evidence that you did present. You hear his wife's testimony. Again, you know, examples of him following specific people and, and, and women that they knew. And one would say, of course, he should be arrested. Of course, he should be convicted. So I, I know that for you, you're conflicted. But I have to say, I think and maybe I'm wrong I, for the average listener and reader. Well, the jury agreed unanimously. Yeah. And that's with a vigorous defense. And what do you, you know, there was a certain celebrity in the news lately who, I guess, had girlfriends accuse him of similar. I mean, it's, it's cost him movie roles now. And, um, but girlfriends and, and others had accused him of similar fantasies. And you actually brought it to my attention that Gilberto spoke out about this. He kind of defended that fetish in page six of the New York Post. Look, it is the case that Valley, to our knowledge, hasn't done any of these things that he has fantasized about. Do you think you prevented him from doing anything? Uh, you know, I think so. Look, in a lot of cases, sometimes what the job of law enforcement is, particularly when you're talking about issues like threats against the president, that sort of thing. I mean, the reason the Secret Service knocks on the door is not always to make an arrest, right? And and sometimes you hear people on one side of, of the spectrum getting upset at heavy-handedness of law enforcement. But if your responsibility is public safety, sometimes you have to, to do things. You knock on a door and you make sure that people know that they're being watched. 
and that threat that they made, law enforcement is aware of. And you hope that that disrupts, you know, people talk a lot about the disruption of plots. Sometimes it's the case that people think they're operating in secret and they can do whatever they want. As soon as they know, huh, people can be watching me. People are aware of what we have afoot. Maybe we should not do that thing. I think it's perfectly reasonable to think that that's what happened with Valley, but we'll never know. And just another, I guess, horrifying thought is that even if Valley says he wasn't serious about going through with it, there were clearly others on these sites and friends that he'd made through these sites that were serious about it. Yeah. I mean, the epilogue to the story is some of these other people who were in contact with Valley, we got the luxury of being able to do what we couldn't do with Valley. And that is to continue the investigation, get wiretaps, introduce an undercover officer, let them buy equipment, including uh, skewers, which is a gruesome fact that I think is in the episode. It's in the book, at least. And then once you have, you know, you see them take more substantial steps in favor of doing and furtherance of doing the actual thing, I think it's actually a good, you know, control experiment, right? You had the same judge, you had some of the same people, you have the same activities, but you have a difference in how long the investigation was allowed to unfold. In one case, you got a reversal of the conviction. In the other case, you got an, an affirmance of the convictions. And so it's an object lesson in how complicated it is to balance the need for getting more evidence, even if you think you have a pretty strong case with less evidence. Well, it's obvious, at least to me, why the jury agreed with your argument. I mean, I thought Hadassah sort of laid it out beautifully when she said, you know, imagine if these were guys talking about blowing up a bridge, right? The FBI and law enforcement officials would you just wait for them to actually do it or would you want them to act on it? And I think back to, you know, the, the terrorist attack here, the insurrection on January 6th and coming out of that, you find out that the, you know, the, the, it wasn't as if nobody knew that some of the ideas and thoughts that, that those participants and rioters and terrorists had, they were talking about it openly online, but there was a sense that, their voice was protected. Their speech was protected. And, and I just, I couldn't help but draw a connection between the two. Well, you know, in some ways, I think Hadassah made this point. Valley benefited from the nature of the thing that he was fantasizing about, right? It, it seems like a deviant fantasy. I think it's an appropriate way to describe it, not to be um, puritanical, as you say. But it's almost easier for people to believe that such a crazy, gross, disgusting, repulsive fantasy of, you know, not just kidnapping, not just raping, not just killing, but also cannibalizing people known to you. It's so crazy that maybe it must be a fantasy. It must be, a, you know, a depraved fantasy. And the other example you give, if someone was going to assert, well, no, I wasn't planning to blow up the building. We weren't planning to rob the bank. That's just a fetish I have. That's less credible because I think it's it's less credible to people that folks are sort of sexually fantasizing about or, or, or non-sexually fantasizing about robbing a bank or blowing up a building, that seems more intentional. I mean, does that make sense? I mean, I, I think Hadassah and the prosecutors were worried that this was a weakness of the case. It was, it was so over the top and so crazy as to almost not be believable. Look, not to bring everything back to you, but I will. I don't mind. You know, again, we, this is not about a judgment thing and, and what people have fetishes about. I mean, I think of... Uh, Chuck Rhodes, how you talk about your dad being so proud of <laughs> Chuck Rhodes and billions being loosely based on you until that opening fetish scene. Very, very loose, very loosely. <laughs> um, a lot of liberties taken with Showtime. But, you know, that's a fetish that may not be everyone's cup of tea. 
But, you know, there's a distinction between that and cannibalism. And that's the only point I'm making. I mean, I, I guess, is it, is it fair to say that regardless of whether he's behind bars or not, he should not have a badge and a gun as a police officer? Well, he does not. So that ended for him. So, you know, there are ways to, to discipline and, and protect the public further. I, you know, I, I think these are hard. I, I want to not overuse the word complicated and complex, but there you go. Well, look, there are reasons why you've chosen particular cases to document um, in these episodes. And again, this one's gruesome. I wouldn't recommend anyone listening to it while they're eating, but it's fascinating. Or with young children. And with young children, that too. But it's fascinating. And, um, I, you know, it's one of those stories that you can't get out of your head. Right. And there's a lot to learn from it. Not because, you know, not because people are in their lives going to be investigating cannibal cases, but, you know, sometimes cases like this that are very bizarre and extraordinary and, you know, seemingly unprecedented help you focus on things that are important in other more garden variety cases and, and decision-making that people have in their lives. It's why doing justice is important, right? And by the way, complicated. And complicated. Well, all three of these episodes are, are fantastic. Um, but I, I just, this one for all the wrong reasons, maybe stood out the most. <laughs> 